So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome here. Those of you, uh, thank you for joining us on what in this beautiful sunny day. So those of you who are on the webcast here know it's a beautiful day here in London, and welcome to everyone who's joining us on the webcast from all around the globe. We've got about 7,000 people registered from around the world today, but here it's great to see so many familiar faces in the audience and to welcome many new ones today. I think it's fair to say it's been a pretty eventful year since we met here last summer for the Stats Review. And for a long wavelength business like ours, a lot can happen in a very short space of time. That's why the Stats Review is so important for us. It helps us understand the past, manage the present, and plan for the future. So we hope it also serves to start a discussion. It fuels debates around the world. I think it helps making decisions for us and for those in our industry and in governments and well beyond that. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone involved in this, uh, this year's project, with a special thank you to our chief economist, Spencer Dale, and his team. And I see some of the members here. So once again, they have produced a detailed report, and I think it's very thought-provoking. In a moment, Spencer will take us through this year's findings. But first, let me briefly highlight a few of the most significant changes from last year. The first of these is we've seen another year of strong demand growth for global oil markets. On the supply slide, we have seen OPEC and other participating countries maintain discipline in their production cuts. And the combination of robust demand and OPEC production cuts meant that oil inventories have fallen back towards normal levels. This adjustment caused a firming in the oil price. Brent is up around 40% since last year, rising from below $50 a barrel to now more than $70 a barrel. Also documented in the statistical review is a remarkable growth in U.S. tight oil production, which should caution us that the recent firming in oil prices is unlikely to persist, I think. Another significant short-term feature highlighted in this year's stats review is the strong growth in natural gas. Natural gas was the largest source of energy growth in 2017. This was driven by China, where consumption surged by 15% last year, accounting for a full third of the global increase in gas demand. We also saw another year of strong expansion of LNG supplies, helping to improve the accessibility of gas around the globe. The improving accessibility of natural gas, along with rising demand, should help us to underpin its long-term use. It's really important to keep the long-term picture in mind. And when considering these short-term changes, particularly when it comes to carbon emissions, in 2014, 15, and 16, we saw three successive years in which there had been little or no growth in carbon emissions from energy consumption. Last year, however, those emissions went up by 1.6%. That's not the direction we want to see emissions going. It's important to see the uptick in 2017 in a longer-term context. Some of the exceptional performance seen in recent years has been boosted by temporary cyclical developments. So some reversal, as Spencer says, was always likely. He said that last year. The good news is that the long-term structural factors working towards reducing emissions continues to progress. As well as the strong growth of natural gas, wind and solar, both grew, contributing to a 17% increase in renewable power last year. Remarkable number. 
higher than the 10-year average and the largest increment on record for growth. We also saw strong coal to gas switching, particularly in China. And I think this is an important development of global significance. The power sector accounts for over a third of carbon emissions from energy consumption, so coal to gas switching really matters for the energy transition. Keep that in mind when Spencer gets to his section on power. I found the numbers really surprising, Spencer. I'll leave him to tell you about that. But if there's one big message in this year's review, it's the opportunity to make real progress on carbon emissions in the power sector. There is the potential to make a huge difference if policymakers go after the environmental rewards. At BP, we're keen to play our part in that. We're growing our gas production. We're also committed, along with our partners in the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, or OGCI, on working on how we unlock the potential of carbon capture use and storage, which is also known as CCUS, along with reductions in methane emissions. And like many other providers, we also see a great future for renewables. We believe BP's sizable investments in solar and wind energy and biofuels will continue to build a positive impact in the years ahead, along with our oil and gas production. As you all know, BP is also a strong advocate of carbon pricing. We believe that that would make energy efficiency much more attractive and make low-carbon solutions of all kinds more cost-competitive. As ever, our sector faces challenges, but we also see lots of opportunities to help us make these informed decisions and position us for the next phase of the energy transition. Over the next decades, we rely on understanding how the industry is changing. And to do that, we require uh, reliable data and timely data. And uh, this is the role that the statistical review and our economics teams has played now for the past 67 years. I certainly find it a helpful guide. I see it on the desks of energy ministers all over the world. I hope you will find it useful. So with that, I'll turn it over to Spencer, who will take you through the report in detail. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And let me add my thanks to everybody for sparing the time to come to today's launch of BP's Statistical Review for 2018, both here in London and St. James, lots of people, lots of familiar faces, and also everybody watching around the world uh, on the web. As Bob said, we've got over 7,000 people registered for today's webcast, which I think is a record um, for the Stats Review. And I'm conscious when you watch on the web, it's not quite the same as as watching um, in person. So please do stay um, with us today, and please do keep sending in uh, your questions um, um, during the next 40 minutes or so. I realise we don't always get to all the questions that people submit from around the world. So um, this time, today, we're going to do a bit of a a new experiment. We're going to do some crowdsourcing towards the end of the most popular questions. So please do send in your questions. Even if we don't get to your actual question, it it will show up um, in in the sort of the most popular crowdsourcing questions at the end. Although one request, when I looked at the questions that people had submitted last year, there was a su- surprising amount of questions of people saying, how do I apply for a job at BP? <laughs> Please do apply for jobs at BP. It's a wonderful place to work, but just not today, because it really messes up my word cloud. So not, not today. <laughs> Our aim when producing the statistical review is that it should be the one-stop shop of choice for all your statistical needs. 
customers like you can come back year after year safe in the knowledge that your regular staples will be available. Updated and fresh, impeccably sourced, clean and ready for consumption, neatly ordered in familiar rows. <laughs> Some of you may even have an IKEA moment and end up using data that you didn't even know you wanted. <laughs> but even though we've been in the marketplace for 67 years, we can't rest on our laurels. The energy world is changing and we need to keep up with evolving tastes and needs. This year, we're offering new data on the fuel mix within the power sector and on the key materials such as cobalt and lithium, which are playing an increasing role in the energy transition. I'm sorry to say that unlike BP's retail outlets, we don't offer customer loyalty cards. If we did, there's a number of people here who would be really high up on that list of the uh, loyalty cards. But we do have the advantage that everything in our one-stop shop is free. Before we taking you through some of the highlights of this year's produce, let me just thank everyone who's been hard at work collecting, cleaning and stacking the data shelves over the past couple of months ready for your, for your convenience. That work was led by the economics team, supported as always by the tireless efforts of the team from Harriet Watt University. Both the economics team and Harriet Watt team are here um, today. Thank you all very much, uh, guys. It's been a tough couple of months, um, but it's worth it. It's very much a team effort. Thank you. As Bob mentioned, at first blush, some of the data for 2017 might seem a little uh, disappointing. Growth in overall energy demand is up. Gains in energy intensity down. Coal consumption grew for the first time in four years. And perhaps most striking of all, carbon emissions are up after three consecutive years of little or no growth. So what does this tell us about the energy transition? Is it progressing less rapidly than we thought? Has it gone into reverse? I would caution against being too alarmed by the recent data. We always knew that some of the exceptional outcomes seen in recent years reflected the impact of short-run cyclical factors, as well as the longer-term structural forces shaping the energy transition. Global GDP was growing at below-average rates, weighed down by weakness in the energy-intensive industrial sectors. Output from some of China's most energy-hungry sectors was falling in outright terms. Those factors were unlikely to persist. Indeed, last year's presentation I gave here had the very snappy title, much to the, to the delight of our communications department, like Jeff here, of Energy in 2016, Short-Run Adjustments, Long-Run Transitions. And sure enough, some of those short-run adjustments came to an end last year. But many of the structural forces shaping the energy transition continued, particularly robust growth in renewables and natural gas. 2017's energy data is perhaps best seen as a case of two steps forward, one step back. To explore this further, let's start by looking at some of the, um, the headline numbers. Global energy demand grew by 2.2% in 2017, up from 1.2% last year, and above its 10-year average. This above-trend growth was driven by the OECD, particularly the EU. Much of this strength can be directly related to the pickup in economic growth. So in that sense, it's a good news story. But it also reflected a slight slowing in the pace of improvement in energy intensity, or if you like, energy productivity, the amount of energy needed to produce a unit of output. 
Despite unusually strong growth in the OECD, the vast majority of the increase in energy demand came from the developing world, accounting for nearly 80% of the expansion. China alone contributed over a third of that growth, with energy consumption growing by over 3% in 2017, almost three times the rate seen over the previous couple of years. This sharp pickup in China was driven by a rebound in the output of some of its most energy-intensive sectors, particularly iron, steel and non-ferrous metals. Yet, despite this increase, the growth of China's energy demand in 2017 was still significantly slower than its 10-year average, and the rate of decline in its energy intensity was more than twice the global average. Two steps forward, one step back. These contrasting dance moves, forward and backwards, can also be seen in the fuel mix. The forward movement can be seen in 60% of the increase in primary energy last year, being provided by natural gas and renewable energy, the red and orange bars on the left-hand side here. Natural gas provided the single largest contribution to the expansion, buoyed by exceptional growth in China. This was closely followed by renewable energy, which again grew rapidly, punching far above its weight, driven by robust gains in both wind and solar power. The step back was coal, which grew for the first time since 2013. And you can see this quite stark turnaround of growth in 2017 relative to the falls we saw in 2016. This growth was largely driven by China, uh, by, by India, sorry, but Chinese coal consumption also increased after three years of successive that's a very quick summary of the big picture for 2017. The plan now is to look at some of these developments and issues in last year's energy markets in a little more detail, starting first with global oil markets. One of my favourite TV shows when I was growing up was a show called Dallas. <laughs> some of you may remember Dallas tracking the trials and tribulations of the powerful Ewing family as it sought to dominate the Texan oil market. It had a cast of many characters, some who had been in the show for a long time but still had the power to surprise, battling against newcomers to, newcomers to the market who were less well-known and who we had to get to know and learn about their behaviour. The show would lurch from crisis to crisis, with building tension and intrigue, often ending at nail-biting moments. Sound familiar at all? <laughs> the good thing about Dallas is you only needed to wait a week until the next episode. We have had to wait a year until the next instalment of the Stats Review to see how the drama of real-life oil markets has developed. To remind you where we left off at the time of last year's statistical review, or perhaps I should say previously in the stats review. <laughs> Flows of oil production and consumption had come back broadly into balance in 2016, but inventories remained at record high levels. OPEC, together with 10 non-OPEC countries led by Russia, sometimes known as the Vienna Group, had begun to implement their production cuts with the aim of accelerating the adjustment in inventories. But US tight oil had started to pick up threatening to offset the impact of the cuts. Like all good cliffhangers, this begged a number of questions. 
Would the production cuts by OPEC and the other members of the Vienna Group work? How much and how quickly would US tight oil respond? And what would all this mean for oil prices? So what happened next? All good soap operas typically have an element of continuity against which more unpredictable elements of the storyline can unfold. Dallas, for those of you old enough to remember, had JR's constant nastiness and Sue Ellen's constant drinking. The constant in oil markets in recent years has been the strength of demand growth, and that indeed continued in 2017, with oil demand growing by 1.7 million barrels a day, similar to that seen in 2016, and significantly greater than the 10-year average of a little over 1 million barrels a day. To put that recent strength of oil demand in some sort of context, average growth over the past five years is at its highest level since the peak of the commodity supercycle in 2006-07. This, despite all the talk of peak oil demand, efficiency of, electric, efficiency of cars, the growth of electric vehicles, all those factors are real and are happening, but persistently low oil prices can have a very powerful offsetting effect. Not surprisingly, oil demand in 2017 continued to be driven by oil importers, shown here in light blue, benefiting from the windfall of low prices, with both Europe and, and the US post, posting notable increases. Growth in Chinese consumption, the largest single contribution, was closer to its 10-year average. But there were some signs in the product mix that the boost from low prices may be beginning to wane. Growth in consumer-led fuels most exposed to oil price movements, especially gasoline, shown in these dark green bars here, slowed in 2017. In contrast, diesel demand in the light green bars bounced back, buoyed by the acceleration in industrial activity. That's the constant bit of the storyline. What about the unpredictable events? particularly on the supply side and the interaction between OPEC production cuts and the response of US tight oil. That interaction can be seen in the pattern of supply growth last year. At an aggregate level, output growth of 0.6 million barrels a day last year was pretty similar to that seen in 2016. But the pattern of that growth flip-flopped quite sharply last year. Output by OPEC and other members of the Vienna Group, shown by these yellow and orange bars, after growing strongly in 2016, fell by almost a million barrels a day last year as the cuts in production took effect. In contrast, after falling in 2016, oil production by countries outside of the Vienna Group grew by around one and a half million barrels last year, led by the US, together with a bounce back in Libya, which was not part of the Vienna Agreement. If we look at the production cuts in a little bit more detail, the Vienna Group had a target for the production cuts of almost 1.8 million barrels a day relative to the base month of October 2016. In practice, the production cuts have far exceeded that, with the most recent data for April of this year showing cuts totaling nearly 2.5 million barrels a day. This overshoot has been concentrated in particular in Venezuela, which is the first bar um, in, this, in this second row of bars here. 
where the economic crisis has caused production to fall by far more than the targeted amount. These production cuts were instrumental in increasing the pace at which oil stocks fell back to more normal levels last year. In particular, the dampening in aggregate supply growth, combined with the um, robust growth in, in, in aggregate demand, meant daily consumption exceeded production for, or for much of last year. As a result, OECD commercial inventories fell by about 150 million barrels in 2017. And in March of this year, we're broadly in line with the five-year moving average measure originally highlighted by the Vienna Group. Now, there's no perfect measure of the normal or equilibrium level of stocks. The five-year moving average measure shown here is obviously distorted since it includes the most recent couple of years during which stocks were excessively high. That's why this line is trending up over this period of time. But if we exclude the most recent period and consider a measure based on the average level of stocks prior to 2015, this has a drawback that it doesn't take account of the increase in desired inventories as oil consumption has grown uh, in recent years. This inventory star measure here tries to avoid both these problems by considering the average level of stocks prior to 2015 adjusted for the increase in consumption since then. This measure suggests that the current level of inventories may be just a little above normal levels. However normal stocks are precisely measured, the big message to take from last year is that the OPEC production cuts worked. The targeted cuts were met and indeed exceeded, and stocks fell back to around more normal levels. That said, the impact of the production cuts would have been even bigger had it not been for the response of US tight oil, which has grown by around 1.3 million barrels a day from October um, 2016. Indeed, the pace of this second wave of growth seen over the past 18 months or so, is comparable to the rapid growth in tight oil between 2012 and 2014, despite a backdrop of much lower oil prices shown here in the red line. To put the size of the increase in tight oil in the context of the production cuts, this chart shows a sort of horse race between the Vienna Group production cuts on the bottom and the growth um, in tight oil, including NGLs, on the top. As you can see, the scale of the increase in US tight oil meant the impact of the production cuts was progressively offset during the course of last year. It started at close to 2 million barrels a day and ended up at less than 1 million barrels a day. So another message to take from last year's data is that US, output, US tight oil did respond to the higher price signals. The speed and scale of OPEC's actions mean that it continues to have the ability to smooth temporary disturbances to the oil market, such as the pace of adjustments in inventories. But the relatively rapid response of US tight oil reinforces the limits on OPEC's power. If OPEC tries to resist more permanent or structural changes to the market, such as the emergence of new sources of supply or the growth of electric vehicles, 
there's an increasing risk that these actions will quickly be cancelled out by the responsiveness of US tight oil. Perhaps to note just one caveat on the potential for tight oil to grow. As many of you know, we've recently seen increasing bottlenecks within the supply chain in the US, plus also signs that investors are becoming less willing to finance continued high levels of investment. This suggests there may be some limits to the speed with which tight oil can grow going forward, at least in the near term. Focusing, the tight oil, focusing on tight oil just for a moment longer, a central part of its success over the past five or six years has been the strong and continuous gains in productivity as technology and know-how have improved. However, the most recent data for the Permian, which accounted for around two-thirds of the increase in US tight oil in 2017, paints a sharply different picture for last year. In particular, using conventional measures based on initial output per rig, measured productivity is estimated to have fallen sharply through late 2016 and much of 2017 before picking up a little bit in the final quarter or so. But much of the fall in this conventional measure was driven by a sharp decline in the rate at which drilled wells were subsequently fracked and completed as the supply chain within the Permian tightened and drilling processes became more complex, rather than by a fall in the underlying productivity of the, drills, uh, the wells drilled. We can control for changes in the completion rate by considering a measure of productivity based on the initial output per completed well, which points to a gradual flattening off in productivity last year, rather than a sharp decline. This measure can be further refined to control for the increasing length of drilled wells by considering a measure of initial output per lateral foot of each completed well. This points to a slight decline in productivity during 2017, but less pronounced than implied by the conventional measure. So what should we make of all this? It's perhaps not surprising that as US title increased rapidly, with production spreading out from the sweetest spots, productivity began to flatten out. And, important, and importantly, this measure of productivity doesn't link directly to profitability if the cost of drilling continues to fall or if acreage is drilled more intensively. But it does perhaps suggest that the rapid increases in tight oil productivity that characterised much of the initial phase of the shale revolution may be beginning to fade. Wrapping up last year's episode, if we consider finally the implication of these developments in demand and supply for oil prices, as you can see, prices drifted lower during the first half of 2007, 2017 as stocks remained stubbornly high. But as the production cuts started to bite and inventories began to fall, prices increased, with dated Brent reaching a high of a little over $65 by the end of last year. As you know, oil prices have increased even further since then, raising the question of what happens next. That will depend, amongst other things, on the behaviour of OPEC and the other members of the Vienna Group. How will they respond to the overshoot in the production cuts? And when and how will they begin to exit from those cuts? 
It will also depend on the behaviour of US tight oil. Will productivity keep declining? And, and are the recent issues with credit availability and supply chain bottlenecks short-term growing pains, or could they act as more persistent constraints on growth? To find out the answers to these and other key developments, tune in to the next exciting instalment of the Stats Review. Until then, if we turn next to natural gas, which, believe it or not, was equally intriguing last year. 2017 was a bumper year for natural gas, with consumption and production both increasing at their fastest rates since the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. As Bob mentioned, the single biggest factor driving gas consumption was the surge in Chinese gas demand, shown here in this blue bar here, where, where consumption increased by over 15% in China, accounting for around a third of the global increase. Much of this rapid expansion can be traced back to the Environmental Action Plan announced in 2013, which set targets for improvements in air quality over the subsequent five years. With that deadline looming, the Chinese authorities in the spring of last year announced an enhanced set of measures concentrated in the northeast provinces of China designed to meet those environmental objectives before the deadline was hit. Those measures would focus on the use of coal outside of the power sector with a combination of carrots and sticks used to encourage both industrial and residential users to switch away from coal into either gas or electricity, with the vast majority opting for gas. The resulting increase in gas demand was greatly compounded by this switch into gas reaching a peak just as winter heating demand was ramping up. This surge in gas demand led to severe strains within China. Retail and wholesale gas prices, shown here on the left, increased sharply. Imports of LNG were ramped up beyond notional capacity limits. There was also widespread rationing of gas, especially for industrial users, as priority was given to households. Now, some of these tensions and strains simply respect the speed with which gas demand expanded. There's a limit to how quickly LNG imports can be increased. Imports of pipeline gas didn't grow by as much as perhaps expected. But the strains also highlighted the underlying weakness of gas infrastructure in China. The network of pipelines across China is incomplete, leading to significant distributional issues. Even more importantly, gas storage capacity in China is inadequate to match the seasonal fluctuations in demand. Effective storage capacity in China is around 3% of consumption, compared with close to 20% in the US and Europe. These types of structural issues can't be fixed overnight and are likely to constrain the extent to which Chinese gas demand outside of the power sector can grow in the near term. In the very near term, Chinese gas demand looks set to continue to increase strongly this year, not least because the surge in consumption continued into the first part of this year, and some of that rationing that held back demand in the final part of last year is likely to ease. 
but it seems unlikely that the extent of the surge in gas demand will be repeated in 2019 and beyond. The other central factor supporting the strength of global gas markets last year was a continued expansion of liquefied natural gas, LNG, which increased by over 10% in 2017, its strongest growth since 2010, aided by the start-up of new LNG trains in Australia and the US. On the demand side, China's increased need for LNG accounted for almost half of the expansion in global demand, overtaking Korea to be the world's second largest importer of LNG after Japan. The tidal wave of LNG projects that were sanctioned between 2009 and 2014 led many commentators to predict the emergence by now of surplus levels of LNG as it took time for demand to absorb the rapid growth in supplies. The green line here gives a sense of the implied profiles for LNG supplies as at the, as at the end of 2014, given the LNG projects that had been sanctioned at that point. And as you can see, this implied profile was materially higher than the range of LNG demand forecasts at that time, shown by the blue wave, suggesting a persi persistent surplus of LNG or an LNG glut. But many observers so far have been surprised by the apparent absence of such a glut. There is certainly little evidence of LNG facilities standing idle due to lack of demand. This absence partly reflects that, due to a variety of technical issues, actual LNG supplies, shown by this yellow line, have come on stream less quickly than, original, than originally planned, moving supply more closely into, into line with those original demand profiles. However, the apparent absence of a glut also reflects the fact that the surplus LNG supplies which did emerge resulted in bouts of unsustainably low prices rather than a build-up of idle capacity. This is illustrated in this chart, which shows Asian spot LNG prices in this yellow line here, moving in a band defined by the top of that band, US exporters' full cycle costs, and the bottom of the band, US exporters' operating costs, with those operating costs at points um, during the last couple of years, acting as a sort of quasi-floor for Asian spot prices. The way to read this chart is that rather than shutting capacity, US exporters have been willing to supply LNG since they were covering their operating costs, even though that was often less than their full cycle costs. So there has, in fact, been an LNG glut of sorts in recent years, but this has been resulted in unsustainably low prices rather than idle LNG capacity. If I may, just one final point um, on LNG. As some of you um, ha have known before, I tend to sort of go on about how the greater mobility of LNG exports in terms of their ability to alter their destination in response to price signals in a way that pipeline exports cannot is likely to lead gas markets around the world to become increasingly integrated, with regional gas prices increasingly moving in unison. Interestingly, this growing integration can already be seen in global gas prices. This chart shows a correlation between the main regional gas prices. 
The correlation between European and Asian spot prices, shown by the red line, has been really quite high since the previous wave of LNG trains around the turn of this decade. But over the past couple of years, the correlation between these markets and US gas prices has also begun to increase. And this correlation is likely to increase further as Henry Hub increasingly plays a role as the anchor price for global gas markets. This growing integration is also apparent in the convergence of the volatility of different gas prices. As markets open up, disturbances in one region are shared across the world, leading to more similar patterns of variability across markets. So clear signs from the recent data that global gas markets are indeed becoming increasingly integrated. We turn next to coal, which is one of the focal points for the step back seen last year. Indeed, after several years of freefall, the coal market experienced a mini revival last year, with both global consumption and production increasing. Consumption rose by 1%, with India recording the fastest growth as demand both inside and outside of the power sector increased. As I mentioned, after three years of successive declines, China's coal consumption also ticked up. This despite the substantial coal-to-gas switching in the industrial and residential sector that we just discussed, and instead was driven by increases in Chinese power demand, sucking in additional coal as a balancing fuel. World production, shown on the right here, increased more strongly, driven by notable increases in both Chinese and US output. Interestingly, the increase in US production came despite a further fall in domestic consumption, with US coal producers instead increasing exports to Asia. Somewhat counterintuitively, the increase in Chinese coal production was a result of ongoing measures to reduce excess capacity within the, within the Chinese coal sector. These measures have been successful in reducing um, excess capacity in the coal sector by around a half over the past couple of years. So significant inroads are being made into the um, Chinese excess coal capacity problem. But how do measures to reduce capacity lead to an increase in coal production last year? Let me try and explain. A central part of this reform process has been managing the need for a Goldilocks-type price for coal in China too hot and it would reduce the pressure on inefficient mines to close or merge as, as well as raising energy costs for the economy as a whole, but too cold and it would threaten the underlying viability of a sector that still provides around 60% of China's, economy, uh, China's energy. To help achieve this balancing act, the Chinese authorities at the beginning of last year introduced a target ban for steam coal prices shown by this green middle swathe here. The blue area either side of the target ban signals in increasing attention by the authorities, and the red lines denote just that, the authorities' red lines for domestic coal prices triggering intervention. The fact Chinese coal prices were above the red line through much of last year spurred a series of policy measures to increase production and so ease price pressures. The increase in Chinese coal production of over 3.5% last year 
its strongest growth for six years was a direct result of those actions. I want to focus for a few minutes now on the power sector. The power sector really matters. It's by far the single biggest market for energy, absorbing over 40% of primary energy last year. And is at the leading edge of the energy transition as renewables grow and energy efficiency improves. As I mentioned, this year's stats review for the first time includes comprehensive data on the fuel mix within the power sector, helping to improve our understanding. Global, global power demand on the left here increased by, by 2.8% in 2017, close to its 10-year average. Almost all of that growth, well over 90%, came from the developing world, showed by the light green bars. Demand within the OECD edged up slightly, but the decoupling of economic growth and power demand seen over the past 10 years in the OECD continued, with essentially no growth in OEC power over the past decade. It's worth remembering that when commentators proclaim the world is electrifying, that power demand in the developed world hasn't grown for the past 10 years. Quite a striking fact. The increase in power generation was driven by strong expansion in renewable energy, led by wind and solar, which accounted for almost half of the global growth. Although wind continued in its role of the bigger, more established elder cousin, it was solar energy that made all the waves. In particular, solar capacity increased by nearly 100 gigawatts last year, with China on its own building over 50 gigawatts. Very roughly, that's roughly equivalent to the generation potential of more than two and a half Hinkley points in solar energy in one country in one year. Global solar generation on the right increased by more than a third in 2017. Much of this growth continues to be underpinned by policy support, but has been aided by continuing falls in solar costs, with auction bids of less than five cents a kilowatt hour, unthinkable for most projects even just a few years ago, now seemingly almost commonplace. Yes, I know there's lots of fine prints that need to be read when understanding the true price of these auctions, and I realise that these costs do not cover the system-wide stability issues associated with renewables. But even so, the cost reductions in solar over the past few years are significant. Standing back from the detail of what happened last year, for me, the most striking and worrying chart in the whole of this year's stats review is the trends in the power sector fuel mix over the past 20 years. Striking because despite the recent extraordinary growth in renewables and the huge efforts to encourage a shift away from coal, there's been almost no improvement in the power sector fuel mix over the past 20 years. The share of coal in the power sector in 2017 was exactly the same as in 1998, with a slight edging down in recent years 
simply reflecting the, the, the earlier drift up associated with China's rapid expansion. The share of non-fossil fuels in 2017, the blue line, is actually a little lower than it was 20 years ago, as the growth in renewables hasn't offset the declining shares of nuclear and hydro energy. Rarely has a chart of three flat lines been so striking. <laughs> Worrying because the power sector is the single most important source of carbon emissions from energy consumption, accounting for over a third of those emissions in 2017. To have any chance of getting on a path consistent with meeting the Paris climate goals, there will need to be significant improvements in the power sector. As I bored many of you during the energy outlook, the answer to almost any policy question on how best and how economically efficiently to reduce carbon emissions from the energy sector over the coming decades is start with the power sector, then focus on the power sector, and then if you've got any spare policy space, push even harder in the power sector. But this is one area where, at a global level, we haven't even taken one step forward. We have stood still, almost perfectly still, for the past 20 years. This chart should serve as a wake-up call for all of us. The backward step in last year's data is most stark in carbon emissions from energy consumption, which are estimated to increase by 1.6% in 2017. That follows three consecutive years of almost no, little or no growth um, in carbon emissions. So on the face of it, a pretty big backward step. This chart con contrasts the growth in emissions in 2017 with the almost flat emissions in the previous three years and shows the factors contributing to this backward step. These, are, of course, are the same factors that we've just been discussing. GDP growth picked up to above trend rates. Much of that growth was driven by industrial activity, which is more energy hungry, causing gains in energy intensity to slow. And the turnaround in coal consumption from the substantial fall seen in the previous three years to a small rise last year meant the improvement in carbon intensity was more muted. So how worried should we be? Last year, in this room, when we discussed the exceptional performance seen over the previous three years, I suggested that some of the improvement was likely to be structural and would persist, but that the degree of improvement was probably exaggerated by several short-run cyclical <coughs> factors, particularly in China. As those short-run factors unwind, as they did last year, it's not surprising that carbon emissions increased to some degree. But the extent of that pickup has probably be also been exaggerated by some short-run factors working in the opposite direction, the unusually strong economic and industrial growth in the OECD and the extent of the increase in power demand in China, which sucked in coal as a balancing fuel. My guess is that some of the deterioration in 2017 relative to the previous three years will persist, but not all of it. So a bit worried but not overly so. Personally, I'm more worried by the lack of progress in the power sector over the past 20 years than by the pickup in carbon emissions last year. Finally, as I mentioned at the outset, a key challenge for the stats review is it needs to adapt to the changing needs of you 
our customers. One of the questions I'm most often asked is whether the availability of metals used to produce batteries for electric cars could act as a constraint on the pace at which they grow. That question was one of the reasons why we included a new section in this year's stats review on key materials for the changing energy system, including data on cobalt and lithium, which are used in the production of batteries for electric cars. In terms of just the basic facts, lithium production is concentrated in Chile and Australia, with Chile holding the majority of proved reserves. <coughs> lithium production increased by almost 50% between 2015 and 2017, as prices more than doubled. For cobalt, shown here on the right, the Democratic Republic of Congo in purple accounts for the vast majority of both production and improved reserves. Cobalt prices picked up sharply last year as demand increased, but this, this hasn't yet fed through into a significant increase in production. The pace of this response may be affected by the fact that cobalt is produced as a byproduct of copper and nickel mining, and so production depends on price trends in those metals as well. The question of whether the availability of either of these metals could act as a constraint on the growth of electric cars really deserves its own presentation. The short answer is that if either metal is likely to pose a bottleneck, it appears most like, more likely to be cobalt. The announced expansion plans for lithium production look sufficient to ensure ample supplies for the next 10 or 15 years. In contrast, the geographical concentration of reserves, together with the nature of its production process, means this is less clear for cobalt. But this needs to be seen in the context of the new wave of battery technologies now being developed, which require less cobalt. So rather than acting as a constraint on the growth of EVs, the availability of cobalt could simply provide further momentum to this technological change. The good news is you can now watch this question unfold in future issues of the Stats Review. Let me conclude before handing over to Bob for the, for the Q&A. Global energy markets in 2017 took a backward step in terms of the transition to a lower carbon energy system. Growth in energy demand, coal consumption and carbon emissions all increased. But that should be seen in the context of the exceptional outcomes recorded in the previous three years. Some backsliding was almost inevitable. Two steps forward, one step back. The road to meeting the Paris climate goals is likely to be long and challenging, with many twists and turns, forward lurches and backward stumbles. To navigate our progress will require timely, comprehensive and relevant data. That's where BP's Stats Review comes in. We've been welcoming customers into our one-stop statistical shop for the past 67 years. But there are many shops, much-loved household names, that have failed to adapt and change with the times. We will continue to provide all the data that you've come to rely on, together with updating our wares for the changing world. So perhaps more John Lewis than Woolworths. Thank you. Thank you.